0: Alright, praise the Lord. Good morning. We're gonna get right into the word this morning. If you would turn your Bibles, Proverbs 1434. Title of my sermon is The Source and Hope of America's Potential Greatness. And that's a long title. Let me add to it, part one. I started um writing my notes, and my notes were so thick. After about four points that I decided that I'm going to have to break this one in half. And uh, the reason why is because I don't want to rush through it and make it one uh, message. It would be way too long, and maybe I would rush through it too much. Uh, But the source and hope of America's potential greatness, part one. The source of any greatness that our nation has had ever has been based in Um, our history um, based on our foundation that is found in the Bible. Based on our foundation of our founding fathers that were placed on the Word of God, that's the source of the greatness of this nation. And so anything that deviates from that foundation is not true greatness. And um, the hope for our future is to go back to that foundation. And if we're not able to do that, it will be a disaster in this nation. And the ones who are responsible for focusing this nation back on the Word of God and our foundations are the church, uh, young and old. And if the young are not being taught this through their church, they may not be taught this at all. So I'm going to spend my time, and you say, well, wait a minute, I don't know if I want to hear a lesson about history. But unfortunately, if I don't teach it here, it may not be taught anywhere. Because there's not a lot of places these things are being taught. So I'm going to take my time and go through this. It says in Proverbs 14.34, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation. Now what does exalt mean in your mind? It lifts them up and makes them great, right? And so if a nation is to be great, it's going to be because of righteousness and nothing else. Righteousness of God. Then it says, but sin, what was that word? Sin disgraces a nation. Fact that is uh takes grace away is what the word disgrace actually means. It's grace being taken away. Sin disgraces a nation, it is a disgrace to any people. Psalm thirty three twelve says Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you right now, Lord. Lord, I ask that your anointing would be upon this message, Lord, that you would speak to your church, Lord God. Lord, I don't ask you speak to a political party, Lord God. I, I ask that you speak to your church, Lord God, believers, those who love you and listen to you first and foremost. Lord, I pray that the other voices would be silenced, and Lord, that your word would be true, Lord. Help us today, Lord God. In your name we pray. Amen. There is a quote that's being circulated around, has been circulated around. It's a quote by Ted Cruz that says 56 million evangelical Christians stayed home and had they voted, they would impose their values upon their nation. I don't know how accurate that number is, but think about it. 56 million evangelical Christians stayed home during the election and did not vote, is what he's saying. And had they voted and continued to vote, their values would be imposed upon this nation. Christian values would be imposed if they voted. And so the purpose of this message is to make sure that the church is engaged in our nation, And our church is engaged in protecting things that are God-ordained. But I'm afraid that the church is not aware of what things are God-ordained and what things are not God-ordained. And so I want to have some clarity from the Word of God on things that are ordained by God in our society and what our responsibilities are as a church First of all, I want to ask the question, what causes a nation to be great? And I think I've answered the question from the scripture that I selected today. Righteousness makes a nation exalted. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. That means you're going to be blessed if God is the Lord of your nation, right? Pretty easy to interpret. So what that means is a man does not make a nation great. Okay, I'm going to go into um, a lot over the next couple of weeks on what we need to do as Christians in this nation when it comes to um, every area of our lives um, as well as voting, and I'm going to go in those areas. And um, But... A man does not make it great. We can't have the ideal that one election, although it is going to be a very important election, one election is not going to change um, the direction of this nation and the direction we're heading is not a good direction. It's a direction of judgment, not a direction of blessing. It's a direction of cursing, not a direction of blessing. And one election, lazy Christian, is not going to cause this problem to go away. And you say, well, you're a Christian because you park yourself in the church every week. You say, well, man, I'm better than any other Christian because they don't. Okay, well, if I park my wheelbarrow in my garage, my wheelbarrow is not a car right? And because you park yourself in a church every week doesn't mean that you're a practicing Christian. And what God's calling us to do is be active as a Christian and not just look like a Christian because we go to work or go to church. I'm sorry. And go to work. There we go. I'll I'll put that right in there. But a man or other men, men do not make a nation great. It is men who follow God who make a nation great. How many know that? Hallelujah. Wealth does not make a a nation great. You can go all through history. Wealth is not a thing that makes a nation great. Wealth does not exalt a nation. Righteousness does. In fact, a lot of you have known individuals who had wealth and it didn't make them any better than the individual that didn't have wealth. In fact, you could say it maybe made them worse. Amen. Hold on, you're going into money now. Political parties do not make a nation great. We say, well, man, I have a method of politics that is better than other methods. Political parties that have bowed to Jesus Christ make a nation great. But political parties in themselves don't make a nation great. Amen. Uh Oh, I touched a golden calf there, didn't I? Don't get offended with me. Education or the educated do not make a nation great. You say, well, the smartest people should be ruling because they know better than the little people. Or I'm far more intelligent than another person. I know more about what should happen to this nation. Intelligent people, in fact, you can look through the whole course of history, just because a person or a nation is intelligent does not make them great. Just look at Germany. Germany was probably the most intelligent nation in the world at the time that Adolf Hitler came to power. Amen. well, Chad, don't pick on the educated. I came here to be lifted up. But it's not our intellect that makes a nation great. It's our ability to bow our knee to Jesus Christ and the Word of God that is going to make this nation great. And at church, we've got to start being great ourselves. We need to start bowing our knee to Christ and live out the principles that are in the Word of God because that's the only way that our nation will be exalted. Amen? Hallelujah. So rather than a man, a method, a party... Each one of these can line up with the principles of God and God says he will bless them. But if you read the Bible, it also says when a nation opposes the principles of God, when a nation decides they want to go against the principles of God, when a nation decides they want to destroy the principles of God, That nation, the Bible says, will see calamity. They'll see judgment. They'll see the wrath of God upon that nation. In church, it's all through the Bible. One nation after another shaking their fist at God. Church, we have places in our country right now where they're burning Bibles. They're taking anything that's Christian and they're destroying anything that has to do with a Christian heritage. They're destroying it. And you say, well, it's probably only in remote places in Oregon and Washington. No, it's every single university almost in this nation is destroying any kind of Christian heritage so that we will not believe that we even have a foundation um, that is Christian. But the truth is, <clears throat> our Constitution is a Constitution that is older than every other Constitution in the world. How many you know this? This document has had longevity that um, scholars have studied for a very long time to try to figure out how is our Declaration of Independence, our Constitution, our Bill of Rights, how has it lived this long? And you say, well, don't all of them live that long. The French Revolution happened about 10 years after the American Revolution. The French Revolution, they wrote a constitution, and um, their ideals were based in rationalism. Their ideals were based in intellectualism. Their ideals were based in the Enlightenment. Their ideals were based in philosophy. They were the most intelligent people in the world, they thought. But none of their philosophy was based on the Word of God. And so the French wrote a constitution. In fact, there's an old joke that's not very funny because uh, bookworms tell the joke and it's just not a funny joke. But if you walk in, uh, a man walked into a library and he said, Hey, let me uh, have a copy of the French uh, constitution. And the librarian said, uh, Hey, we don't uh, stock periodicals. Because the French, I got one laugh. Wow. See, I didn't even intend for that to be funny at all. That's really good. Who laughed? Awesome. You're awesome, whoever did that. That's great. One of the Ryans did it. (laughs) But France is more typical of the constitutions that are made around the world, okay? France's constitution didn't last very long. In fact, uh, uh, this writer with the University of Chicago who was basically wrote one of the longest uh, and most boring pieces of literature on studying the longevity of constitutions, he goes on to say, France is the most typical of national constitutional practice. The United States has a 231-year-old constitution, 244 years under our Declaration of Independence. Compare that with the French. We are the oldest of all such constitutions. Uh, we are a triumph of philosophies and ideas that find their roots and origins in the Bible. The French find their roots... In the Enlightenment, Greek philosophy and rationalism. One historian put it this way. Consider the Declaration of Independence that no nation has been so long under the same founding document as America has under its Declaration of Independence. France had their revolution and France is now in their 15th government. Now I want you to imagine how bloody it is to switch um, your whole government and constitution. France, with all of their wisdom and intelligence, are in their 15th government. He goes on, he says, Brazil is in its 7th constitution since 1822. Poland is in its 7th since 1921. Afghanistan has had 5 since 1923. Russia has had 4 since 1918. And this is true of almost every nation of the world. Do you hear that? This constitution that was written um, has had longevity... And it's maintained peace in our nation for 244 years. How many think we may take it for granted a little bit? And that constitution is under attack right now more than it's ever been in the history of our nation, and it's attacked it's being attacked by those whose, um, those whose ideology are communism and socialism. How many know this is true? This isn't a secret anymore, is it? Our Constitution is under attack. And um, in order for us to defend our Constitution, how many know that our responsibility is to pray for our nation? Our responsibility is to be active um, in defending uh, values that are Christian values. And you say, well, man, Chad, I'm totally opposed to nationalism. Nationalism is the ideal that the world is broken down into nations. And there are a lot of people that say, you know what, I refuse to pledge allegiance to a nation. I don't like nations. I don't want to be a part of a nation. Um, it's ungodly to have nations. And this is the effort that a lot of people are trying to make, that there should not be nations. So I'm going to go back, and the first point I want to make today is, does God approve of nationalism? Because I think this is a question, unless we get out of the way, then how are we going to ever have anybody support our system of government? And if our system of government is based in Christian values and the rest of the world, uh, for the most part, is not, then why would we ever defend our system of government? And so I want to make sure over these next several weeks, I make the points um, that need to be made for us to support our nation and pray and defend our Constitution, I believe 100% uh, these are calls of God upon the lives of every Christian. And hopefully we can make a dent in that 56 million that think it's okay to stay home and not impose their values on their society. Because there's another part of this nation that aren't afraid to impose their values and they're not Christian values. Genesis 11, 6, it says... And you probably read this story, but you probably overlooked it and didn't realize how important this story was. It says, Genesis eleven six. Now the whole earth, how much of the earth? The whole earth used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they, who's they? The whole earth. As they found a plain in the land of Shiner and settled there, they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. They used bricks for stone and they used tar for mortar. They said, Come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the whole face of the earth. So what were they afraid of? To be scattered. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people. They all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now, get this, it's important. Nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, he's talking to the Godhead here. Let us go down and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord, pay attention to who did this. The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there was there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth. And from there, the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now God, God's justice is being demonstrated here. In fact, if God doesn't spread them over the face of the earth and confound their language, they remain one people. And they remain one religion. Okay, the religion is not the religion that God taught them, right? It's not seeking the God of heaven. This is a a false religion, false gods, false idol. all false religion goes back to this group of people, okay? And it is a false religion. And they all were of one tongue, which means they were all of the same religion, which the religion was false. So how does God demonstrate His justice in avoiding this circumstance ever happening again? He scatters them over the face of the earth, and then the next chapter you can actually follow every nationality in the world. You can go to the Encyclopedia Britannica and you can see where every nation of people originated and what part of the earth they moved to. God actually made the nations. How many know that? And because God made the nations and God scattered them, God put protection on the earth against this ever happening again. In fact, let's consider it a cancer. Okay, as an example, this evil that was being spread by this one leader and this one nation and this one language, this evil spread over all the people. And in order to cut the cancer out, God made them a separate nation and then made many, many, many nations. And so evil now can't spread as easily as it spread with one nation. So what God did in his mercy was, I'm going to protect you by making nations. And so now you have nations that are opposed to nations. And they say, hey, we don't worship like you because we have a different culture. We don't do things like you. We have a different culture. And when you try to impose it on one nation, they fight. You pose it on another nation, they fight. Next thing you know, you got 20 nations saying, we don't want to do what you're trying to make us do. And you say, well, wow, man, that's awful because that's where war originated. War originated because God is trying to protect the world from this sin that could spread instantly over the entire world of people. How many understand this? In fact, the Jewish rabbis even teach, you say, well, why does man have to work? You know, why does God curse man with the sweat of his brow to have to work? And you know that they actually teach that God did that in His mercy, because if man had time on his hands, he would sin a lot more than if he had to work for his food. And they actually teach that, that God in his mercy gave man work because sin would have spread much more rapidly had they had time on their hands. Think about it. So God directly has created nations to protect the world from sin becoming a cancer and instantly infecting the entire world by one leader. And God is actually restraining that one world government from ever happening again. In fact, he says there's one period of time where the Antichrist will have an ability, he'll be unrestrained, and the nations will willingly give themselves to one ruler. And when that happens, the book of Revelations in force. At that time, the tribulation... And the end of all things will happen when God pulls the restraint out of the way and we're back to one nation just like it was in the Valley of Shinar. How many know this? And God is restraining that right now through nations, but in the last days there's going to be a uniting of nations. Play on words, I'm sorry. Acts 17.26 says, And he, capital H, that's God, made one man made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. Do you hear that? God created from one man every nation of mankind, and He's going to determine their appointed times, meaning how long will this culture live and when will their demise be. And they also has marked the boundaries of their habitation, right? That's uh, boundaries of their nation. So God is very active in making nations. And the purpose of the nations is so that righteousness might be in each nation. God wants each nation uh, to have righteousness. And when evil spreads, God hopes that a group of people will go And live righteously because God wants to what? Exalt a nation. God's already said, why would God be against nationalism? But he says he wants to exalt a nation with righteousness in that nation. Why would God be against nation when he says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. God intends us for us to have a nation and be one nation under God. And by the way, there's not many nations of the world that will say, They're one nation under God. In this nation, there's about 50% that won't even tolerate that. You knew what I was preaching today, didn't you? She's got her her flag shirt on. (laughs) So the deception of the last days is that we need to unite the nations. The separation of the nations is not a bad thing, and nationalism is not always a bad thing. So let's begin to look at the United States of America and let's figure out what are the things uh, that make America great. In fact, uh, next week I'll be going into the the things about America that aren't so great. Amen? And then I'll be going into how how to be great again will be my last section I'm going to go through. What are the things that make America great? Well, let me uh, tell you right now, there are some people in this nation that don't believe that the nation had any greatness ever. That there's nothing about the nation that's great. And, um, and if they had their way, they would change everything. And they believe that would make the nation great. But history tells us, based on all the other nations of the world, that those things will fail. And we're going to try them again just to see if maybe they'll work. Uh, Here's a quote from the Washington Post on August 15, 2018. It's from the governor of New York, Andrew Cuomo. He was at a bill signing ceremony in New York City. Cuomo took on Trump's Make America Great Again slogan. Ostensibly, to build up his anti-Trump bona fide group, he faced a primary challenge from Cynthia Nixon. He may have protested a little too hard when he said, we're not going to make America great again. It was never that great to begin with. This is the same governor that said the number is down of COVID cases because we brought the number down. God did not do that. Faith did not do that. Destiny did not do that. We did that with a lot of hard work. Now, Church, I'm just telling you, you say, well, man, are you going to go Democrat Republican here? Or what are you going to do here? And I'm just telling you, there's a large portion of our country that hate this nation. They hate our Constitution. They hate Christians. They're anti God. They're anti Christian. And, uh, if you ask me if I'm going to preach against this in this series, and, and yeah, I am. And I, and I apologize to some who are going to be offended. But in order to make our nation great again, we can't do it through parties. We need to do it through a word of God. That means that I will pick on the Democratic Party pretty heavily because the things they are doing are anti-Christian. And you say, well, good, you're going to make everybody a Republican. No, I'm going to tell you that the Republican Party needs to seriously reform. And I'm going to preach the word of God, which is going to be stinging to both parties and especially stinging to the church. Because the church is the banner. The church is the leader. We are the dog um, that wags the tail. We're not the tail that wags the dog. We're the leaders, okay? We're the ones that are standing up, and we're the leaders that are moving forward. So we've got to understand what in our past made this nation great. And the first one I want to say is the Bible was the authority which they built their ideals upon. Now, if you go to a university, they have already built in um, weeks and weeks of programming to brainwash your mind. They want to spend lots of time. Um, it's almost like an aggressive um, advance on students the minute they walk in the door. Let us brainwash them immediately on what the history of the United States is. And meanwhile, let's destroy the history so people will never find out. There was a study done by Charles Heineman and Donald Lutz. They're political scientists. Now, Charles Heineman was the professor emeritus of political science at Indiana University, Now, this is a very liberal institution, by the way. How many know that? Amen? How many know that? Very liberal. He was the professor emeritus until his death in 1984. He wrote this book in 1983. And he was the past president of the American Political Science Association. So this is a guy that really um, is not an amateur when it comes to political science, okay, and studying history. And he did a study of the sources of authority that were used by the 55 men who were the framers of the Constitution. They went back, they looked at letters, they looked at public papers of the 55 men, everything they could find. They reviewed 15,000 items, 3,154 references from all sources. Here is a quote from one of the writers of the book, Donald Lutz. It says, I set out with Charles Heinemann to read comprehensively the political writings of Americans published from 1760 to 1805, the period defined as the founding era, during which the theory and institutions informing the state and national constitutions took their final form. Reviewing an estimated 15,000 items, reading close to 2,200 items with explicitly political content, We identified and rated those with the most significant and coherent theoretical content. Included were all books, pamphlets, newspaper articles, monographs printed for public consumption. Excluded was anything that remained private and so did not enter the public consciousness, such as their letters and notes. Essentially, we exhausted all those items reproduced in collections, published by historians and newspapers, available at the Library of Congress, the early American imprints held by the Lilly Library at Indiana University, the Huntington Library at San Marino, California, and the Library of Congress. How many think this is a pretty exhaustive study? Finally, we examined the two volumes of Shipton and Mooney, National Indexes of American Imprints, and for items from the Evans Collection of the Early American Imprints on microcards, The resulting sample was 916 items there, which includes 3,154 references, and we studied 224 different individuals. They studied all 55 framers, and additionally, a total of 224 individuals between that period of time, including all of the anti-federalist papers and all the federalist writings. Although it's not exhaustive, this sample is by far the largest ever assembled and neither excludes nor emphasizes Anybody's point of view? It sounds non-biased, right? This study, when they were done, they realized that the Bible, 34% of the quotes that they used in all these writings, 34%. 15,000 items, 224 individuals, all 55 framers, 34% of their writings was from the Bible. And that's four times more than any other source that they identified. In fact, the second was Baron Montesquieu, and Baron Montesquieu was a French writer, and uh, Baron Montesquieu is known for his writing. In fact, he was a Catholic French writer, and um, he began to write in a in a period of time um, where there was a heavy Protestant influence, and he wrote on separation of powers. And uh, that wasn't very popular in a Catholic environment where the divine right of kings uh, was the rule of the day, meaning that God had invested a king to be like God and make all of the decisions. The Catholic Church kind of liked that because they could appoint kings. Okay, He was a Catholic in French and wrote about separation of powers, and he said that you should never have the people making the laws also enforce the laws and also... Um, evaluate the law. So he was very clear uh, and had a biblical foundation. In fact, he quoted the Bible really often. They actually say you can take Montesquieu and the third one, which is Blackstone. They say those three really are all the Bible. It's it's really 50% because they quoted the Bible and their whole foundation was based on the Bible. But Montesquieu uh, was very, he was considered the greatest mind of that day on separation of powers like to make sure that nobody ever becomes despotic again or nobody ever becomes a a ruler who is a dictator. And uh, so he had a lot of writings in that area. But one-third, four times of those, the sources were the Bible with our founding fathers. And you say, well, why is that important? Because no other nation in the world was following that course. And some people say, well, wait a minute, they were influenced by the... Uh, um, By the Enlightenment. In fact, you'll see a lot of universities that try to say that they were heavily influenced by the Enlightenment, and the Enlightenment ideals um, is where they got their philosophies, but they really weren't. 34% of their ideals and quotes were from the Bible. And you say, well, what was it like in France at the time? In France, they had an unrestricted democracy. That means I am not restricted in anything I do. I want freedom to do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it, and the French Revolution was based in ideals that say that nobody can tell you what to do with anything. In fact, the ideals that we see as the foundation of our universities today are actually based in those Enlightenment ideals. The uh, founding fathers were repulsed by those ideals. They felt like that we should have the freedom and rights, in fact, we'll get into this in a minute, but they felt like all rights were governed by God. In fact, when you get into Blackstone, uh, W.E. Blackstone, William Blackstone, was uh, 7% of their quotes. Baron Montesquieu was 8%, Blackstone was 7%, the Bible was 34%. And Blackstone wrote the Blackstone commentaries on the law. You say, well, what did Blackstone teach in his commentaries on the law? Am I boring everybody yet? I hope I'm not. Blackstone's commentaries... I'll, I'll give somebody to tell me the truth. Am I boring you, Curtis? Okay, good. All right. Curtis is into it. I knew he'd tell me the truth. Everybody else wouldn't tell me. The, appreciate that. <laughs> but Blackstone, on his commentaries on the law, the reason why he was so important and why this is an important Christian foundation is Blackstone uh, taught what was called natural law. And so what natural law meant was that we, in fact, uh, here's a quote here. It says, we do not rule where God has objected. That means all of our natural law is first based in the Bible, and if God objects to something, then we don't make it a law and rule against Him. So the Blackstone commentaries on the law were natural law, and those natural laws were based in the law of Moses and based in... Uh, the natural laws of the universe. In fact, here's a quote from Blackstone that says, Thus, when the supreme being formed the universe and created matter out of nothing, he imposed certain principles upon that matter. That's you, the matter. From which it can never depart, and without it would cease to be. If we further advance... From mere inactive matter to vegetable and animal life, we can find that still they are governed by laws too. More numerous indeed, but equally fixed and invariable. Man considered as a creature must necessarily be subject to the laws of his creator. For he entirely is a dependent being. No human laws should be suffered to contradict the laws of nature and the laws of revelation through God. So Blackstone taught a natural law that meant that we can't make laws that are opposed to God. That's why in the 13 colonies embrace yourself, I'm going to maybe get some enemies here. In the 13 colonies, homosexuality was illegal, and the reason why it was illegal was because Romans one said, as it's against the natural law of God." And you say, "Well, man, I bet that society is going to function terribly with laws like that. Just look what that going against Blackstone's philosophy did to our society. Now we can't even take our little girl to the bathroom and wonder if there's not a man in there. The laws in our nation, it's a problem. It's a foundational conflict with the way we were founded. Okay, we were founded to never overrule the laws of God when we make human laws. Judges were to evaluate that law based on the law of God. And if God clearly contradicts it, we can't be for it, is the way our foundation was built. And that's why Blackstone is so important. So number one, we were a nation who built our our entire... Um, Like I said, all of their philosophies and everything they believed was based on the Bible first, and then even the writers that were secondarily writers were based on Christian principles, okay? And you say, well, what's the alternative? Uh, Have you ever read the Charter for the United Nations? Have you ever read some of the Canadian laws? Have you ever read some of the laws today that are opposing our Constitution? Why do you think so many splinter groups are angry at our nation and want to get rid of the Christian influence? Because they're so opposed to the foundation that we were built on. And church, if we don't get a hold of this foundation, that foundation will be broken up and it will be destroyed. We've actually got to stand up and you say, well, man, I want to say what's politically correct. The days of being politically correct are over. That was a lie from the beginning, the political correctness. The political correctness was a way to muzzle the church, the way to keep the church quiet, the way to keep the church from talking against sin. Because what does sin do? Again, from our text, disgrace is a nation. This nation has been destroyed by sin. And you say, well, are you a Democrat or Republican? I'm not going to tell you. Because my ideals aren't based on Democrat and Republican. My ideals are based in changing both because both are sending our nation in the wrong direction. And one one party is doing it far faster than the other party. The other party is doing it slower, so they're not necessarily better, but they're doing it slower than the other party. And if that offends somebody, I'm just telling the truth. How many know that I tell the truth and I don't care? You say, well, man, we'll take your paycheck away. I don't care. He'll run you out. I don't care. He'll take your tax. I don't care. Why do I care? I'm only here to preach the truth, and if I'm here to preach the truth, I'm wasting your time. And maybe if that offends you, you need to uh, question what authority your political party has in your life. Your political party could actually be at a higher place than God. Amen? Am I telling the truth? Your political party should never be above God and the Word of God. The second thing that made America great, the God-given rights that we acknowledged. Our nation was founded on an ideal of inalienable rights. So what does unalienable mean? How many have ever had a lien on anything that you've owned? The bank will take a lien on your property. So if you have a house and you borrowed to buy that house, they'll have a lien, which means until you pay that house off, I have um, access and the power to take your property, right? And so the Constitution says that we have unalienable, meaning a lien can't be put on these rights, meaning you own them, we can't take them away, and they're given by God. And this is one you're going to have to be really careful. It's one you don't hear very often, but it probably is the most, in, one of the most important things. And it's and it's based in the Bible, and a lot of people don't realize this. But it means that the government cannot take the ownership of your rights away. They're not the grantor of your rights, and they're not the ones who can take away the rights. God gave them before government ever existed. And you say, well, when did that happen? Genesis one twenty seven says this. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, created he him, male and female, created he them. So this is the moment where God says, you are created in the image of God. And because we're all created in the image of God, God has given us certain rights as an individual. And what a lot of governments have done over history is, They've taken away the human rights of people. Like, you don't have a right to worship. You know, who has the ability to take away my right to worship God? You know, the Bible is very clear. Every time they try to take away your right to worship, I mean, Daniel, you know, look at Daniel. He, he He had a custom of praying a certain way, and they said, hey, don't pray that way. And Daniel was like, well, I've always prayed this way. I'll continue to pray this way. And he opened the curtain to make sure everybody's still seen him. You know, um, the disciples are preaching and they, they, they basically say, you can't preach anymore in the name of Jesus. They flogged them and sent them away. And next thing you know, they're walking across the road preaching again. And say, we listen to God, not man. And so these rights are inalienable. I can worship. I can speak my opinion. You know, I, can, I have a right to a fair trial. I have a right... To defend myself. In fact, if uh, every human being, how many know this, if you're being attacked and somebody's trying to kill you, you have a human right to protect your life because you're made in the image of God. And so this right cannot be taken away. It's not given by the government. It's not taken away by the government. You say, well, what happens when uh, the Roman government is just killing Christians? Well, it's way past the point of ever having the ability to protect yourself. Now a despotic ruler is just doing as he pleases, and he's taking everybody's rights away. And our nation is in danger of going that direction if we don't take a stand now. We have inalienable rights, and you say, well, how do I know that they're from God and not the government? James 3.9 says, With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse men. We have been made in the likeness of God. So he's still saying we're in the likeness of God. And then Genesis 9, 6, listen to this. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, God made man. And you say, well, why is that so important? Because in Genesis 9, it's right after the flood. And this is the moment God is in instituting human government. In fact, human government really didn't exist before the flood. And now God is instituting it. He's saying we need human government, and the reason why is because before the flood, the time of Noah, violence was all over the face of the earth. Man was killing man, there was no law, there was no order, there was anarchy, and after the flood, God said, now we're going to institute a system of justice, and if somebody murders somebody, we're going to make sure that that man dies, they killed another man, and God's instituting judgment. But the interesting thing is here, God repeats again what he said in Romans chapter 1, verse 27. He says, for man is made in the image of God. That's why you punish somebody that killed a man. And so what God is saying is that through all the wickedness, through all of the earth being destroyed, through all of the violence, through all of the negative things that happened during the flood, man's still in the image of God. Every man, woman, and child that lives in this world, regardless of race, regardless of color, they all deserve human rights because they all were made in the image of God. Let me include every baby, too. Made in the image of God. And because being made in the image of God, that means they have rights that were given to them by God and nobody can take them away and nobody can give them. So from the Declaration of Independence, we begin to see these reflected in the writings. Declaration of Independence, here's several random lines. The laws of nature and of nature's God. Another part says we hold these truths to be self-evident and all men are created equal. Uh, Number three, they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. So who gives the rights? The creator. Not men appealing to the supreme judge of the world for the rectitude of our intentions with firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. And you say, and here's John Adams actually quote, rights are antecedent, which means come before all earthy governments. Rights cannot be repealed or restrained by human laws. Rights are derived from the great legislator of the universe. And this is in keeping with Romans, or Genesis 9. And you say, well, why is this different than the rest of the world? That's what we've got to ask ourselves the questions. Uh, The United Nations, all rights begin with the organization. They say, we give you rights. Uh, Some people have been quoted in the United States saying, no nation in the world has been given more rights. And see, here's the problem. All through history until this moment, people did not recognize people to have rights that were given by God. And you say, well, man, and I'm going to get into this next week, things that weren't so good about America. You say, well, how were those rights not equal when we began. How many know that the one thing that they didn't have agreement on in the Constitutional Congress was the majority of the nation did not want slavery? And that was the one issue they set aside and they said, this is unresolved. We'll resolve this later. How many know that? It was an epidemic in the world. You say, well, they created it. No, they were receiving that from the the whole world was in slavery. Okay, and this particular group for the first time, began to recognize that everybody is equal, and they consider get this, in fact, you can look at uh, Abraham Lincoln, one of his speeches, he said, the early forefathers seen this as a cancer. And because they could not defeat the British with separation, they decided to have a union with it, but they recognized it was a cancer, so they immediately came up with the Northwest ordinance that says it will be limited to the areas where they're at but if it spreads to any other area it's forbidden and so the the war was actually fought over the fact that they did not want that to spread to other territories and they had hoped to keep it in the one area like Abraham Lincoln actually said it was a cancer that if you were to cut it out that moment you would bleed to death but we'll save it for a later moment where we could cut it out but they knew there would be extreme bloodletting amen but this is a group, and you say, well, man, if they were in this maturity of all people being equal, why didn't they do it at that moment? They were in their infancy. They were just beginning to state that all men were equal. And and because of that constitution, everybody in this nation have used that constitution to to, rem- to become equal. It was the constitution that was cited to become equal. Um, the second thing, our third thing here, I told you it was a long one, Actually, I want to read this from Declaration of Independence on the last one. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. They are endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. And listen to this, that to secure these rights, notice they didn't say to create these rights. Government in Genesis 9 was formed to protect rights. Our governments are not formed to give rights. How many know that? Government is formed to protect rights. That's why when you go to another nation, how many know that a lot of nations around the world right now, if you got arrested, uh, you wouldn't have a speedy trial? One of their tactics is to put you in jail and make you sit there for a long time, even if you're innocent. Here we have a speedy trial. Why? Because we're trying to give equal rights under justice. Here we get a fair trial among our peers. Other nations, do you know what happens in a lot of nations? A lot of nations that we consider great, a lot of communists think they're great nations, but they'll lock you up, innocent as you could be. They'll lock you up and they'll keep you there for a long period of time and you'll never have a trial. And church, I'm just telling you, these are things that we've taken for granted, but if we're not careful, we're going to lose these rights. These are very important rights. They're godly rights. They're Christian foundations. And I'm going to get into plenty next week on things that aren't so good. Third thing that they did that was very uh, Bible-based was they recognized their sin nature. I got into this a little bit. But there was a very heavy influence from the time they began to land on our shores to the time they uh, had the Constitutional Convention. And the idea was the Founding Fathers recognized that every last one of us have sinned and come short of the glory of God. They had came out of an environment where there was the divine right of kings. And so the divine right of kings was, in fact, if you were in a nation and you want to get something done, it's a whole lot easier to get done with a dictator or a monarch because he says that it's done. In our system of government, it's very difficult to get anything done. And a lot of people say, well, they're not getting anything done, and that's a good thing. The reason it's a good thing is because powers have been separated. Nobody has centralized power. No form of our government has centralized power. In fact, they separated it horizontally and they separated it vertically and they had certain swaths of land. Uh, Almost every piece of land you're on that has government uh, is ruled by several different bodies. In fact, one has to get consent from the other, the other has to get consent from the other, and then the other has to get consent vertically. And so they made it in a way where a person can't, Control. In fact, the divine right of king says that a right, the king is always right because he has the divine right of God to make decisions. And it didn't acknowledge whatsoever that all men are sinners and all men are capable of making bad decisions. And so the framers of our Constitution understood sin nature if they understood anything. Because of their religious backgrounds, um, their Protestant background was very strong in the area of that man has sinned and the human nature is bad. Whereas most of the world at that time was saying man was good. And the more intelligent you are and the more educated you are, the better you could rule and you're better to make decisions for the people um, than the normal people who are not very intelligent. It's called aristocracy. And so a lot of the world believed the most intelligent could make the decisions. And how many know uh, the United Nations right now, that is their philosophy? That a few elite are better to make decisions based on their intelligence than allowing normal people to make their decisions. Well, the framers of the Constitution, in fact, George Washington probably could have made a case for himself to be king. I mean, you know that. He actually had an opportunity to probably be King George, and he's quoted as saying, "We left King George. I won't be King George." And the Constitutional Convention, he actually presided over it. And what I found amazing reading the Constitutional Convention notes by Madison is George Washington was just a stately man. I mean, he just was well built, um, didn't speak much. And when he spoke, everybody listened, the most respected man in the nation. And uh, he didn't talk the whole Constitutional Convention. He, it, they don't have any record of him until the very end. And he said uh, he, was, he was very pleased with what they did. And he said, if we don't sign this, and I ratify this, he said, there will be bloodshedding in the future of our nation. And so he encouraged everybody to do it. But he didn't speak nearly the entire time. This is not a dictator. This is a guy that willingly allowed the powers to be separated. Now, where did they get this ideal of separation of powers? They um, looked at Isaiah thirty-three twenty-two, and some of the writings state this. It says, the Lord is our judge. The Lord is our lawgiver. The Lord is our king. He will save us. You say, well, how did they get separation of powers out of that? Because that's the three forms of government. He's our judge, which is our judicial branch, right? He is our lawgiver, which is our legislative branch. They make the laws. And he is our king, which is our executive branch, uh, who they said was better to have one person than the executive branch. And so what they said is, we're not God. Amen? Listen to me here. We're not God. There are a lot of people that want to be the sole, um, sole governor in the, in the, in the, in the nation. They want to make the decisions for everybody. They basically believe in themselves that they are God. And our founding fathers were wise enough to say that we are not God. We are not going to be, uh, we're not going to invest the judge, the lawgiver, and the king in one person, only God, only the Messiah is capable of doing that. So they began to separate the powers. So that was a very godly thing from the Bible that they recognized and put into practice that we should have separation of powers. Now, how many know we'd be a mess right now if the president made the laws... And I'm talking about, think about every administration. The president made the laws, executed the laws, and then evaluated the laws to see if they looked good to him. And in a lot of places around the world, that's how they function. And when they did this, they were following biblical guidelines that man is sinful and George Washington is as sinful as anybody else. Even though he's the best man that we know and everybody trusts him and he's very honest, we're not going to entrust uh, too much power in one person, we're going to do it over three branches of government. Let me give you one more thing. Amos 7, 7-8, to 8, okay? It says, Thus the Lord showed me, and behold, the Lord was standing by a vertical wall. He had a plumb line in his hand. The Lord said to me, What do you see, Amos? I said, A plumb line. Then the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to put a plumb line in the midst of my people. I will spare them no longer. Now, a plumb line is something you just dangle down... And you can put it up against something and see if it's square or not. And it does not lie. When the plumb line is placed on something, you can see if it's straight or if it's crooked. And uh, the plumb line is how God, in fact, God, God sometimes pronounced judgment in the Bible. And he hadn't even destroyed it yet. And they're already seeing visions of angels with plumb lines trying to rebuild. And so what God's calling this church to do, I'm not calling this church um, for political party reasons. I'm calling this church to pray for your nation and stand up against evil, okay? Stand up against evil, stand up against every political platform that is against God, that's against His Word, stand up for the truth, because God is coming through with a plumb line. And he's measuring this nation, and he's trying to see, do you line up with the Word of God? Is what you're building lining up? And by the way, he's doing the same thing in your life. You say, well, I'm better than the other people. I'm better than this person. I'm better than that person. The Lord is taking a plumb line, and he's measuring it with the Word of God. And he's trying to see, does this person's life line up with what my Word says? And God's calling us to line up with the Word of God. God's causing this nation to line up against the Word of God. In fact, I'm going to get in my next two sections I said are what was not so great about America and how can we be great again. And uh, so I want you guys to really, like I said, don't, I know it's kind of boring history. I mean, I history is boring. No? but well, we got to pray. That's why, you know, one does over there. He's going to get a good dose of it in about a month in college, so... He'll, he'll even hate it more probably. All right, stand to your feet if you would. So church, the um, if God ordained nations, I want you to think about this as we go to the Lord in prayer. If God ordained nations and we're all supposed to be a part of a nation, right? Isn't it better to be a part of this nation than any other nation in the world? I mean, I, I love the foundations that we had. And church, I want to pray for this nation. And you know what? I look at a lot of the writers and a lot of the um, founders of our nation, and something inside of me says, I want to do it better than they did. I want to be more influential than they were. I want to see my nation uh, better than they seen our nation. I want to leave uh, this place better than how I found it. And uh, sometimes we're willing to just give our nation away. How many know that? We're almost like Esau sometimes. We like to sell our birthright for almost nothing. And the Lord's saying, no, fight for your nation. If God decides to judge this nation, He'll protect those who serve Him, right? But I want to fight to the very end. I want to pray for my nation. I want to speak out against evil. I want to stand up for righteousness. And church, this is a call... To pray for your nation. This prayer room is open every day for that purpose. To pray for your nation. Cry out for God to change this nation. Cry out for revival. And God wants to do something in this nation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. Lord, we thank you for this nation that you've given us, Lord God. Lord, we acknowledge, Lord God, the good things. And we acknowledge the bad, Lord. Every nation has good and bad, Lord God. And Lord, we ask right now, Lord. That you do a work in our nation, doing a work in our people, Lord God. Father, give our people the strength to stand up against that which is evil in our nation, Lord. Lord, to have eyes that see, Lord God. Encourage, Lord God, to stand up, Lord. Oh, Lord, I pray these things in your name, Lord. Hallelujah. Find a place to pray. If you need prayer, we're up here. Hallelujah. The term "silent majority," silent majority, and uh, if 54 million is right—the number I started with—of the amount of Christians, evangelical Christians, not just Christians, evangelical Christians, stay home and don't vote. And I'm not saying—I'm not even talking about the voting part. I'm just talking about the staying home. Part. That means that we're asleep as a church. We're asleep as a church. We're sleepwalking through this experience that we're living out. And you say, well, man, do you see that as a as a pastor? Are there a lot of people asleep as it appears in the churches? Absolutely. There are people sleepwalking. And the Lord is trying to awaken because while 54 million people are sleeping the world's falling around falling apart around you all of the ancient foundations are being broken literally being broken and so you want to tell me to be politically correct church I've got to call you to action I've got to call the church to wake up I've got to call the church to rebel against their political parties. All right, be Christians first, understand? Be Christians first. No, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. No, be a Christian first. Be devoted to God. Be devoted to change in America. Be devoted for standing up for righteousness. Quit making agreements with sin. Quit shaking hands and saying, I'm just as good as the other people. God's calling us to something different, church. God's calling us to rise up. You say, well, religion has no place in government. Now, who said that? I studied the founding fathers forever, and I've never seen them say, there's no place for religion in politics. In fact, the whole First Amendment was written so the government wouldn't bother the church. Church, we're going to have to get busy. We're going to have to begin educating our own children on what our foundations are. If I preach today and it seemed like new information, it shouldn't be. It should not be new information. We've allowed... Let me let me tell you this. In fact, I'll tell you this. The... the Our governor was elected by the Teachers Union. And I'll be getting into this next week, but the Teachers Union is one of the most disgusting organizations. And I'm not saying teachers are disgusting, I'm saying that organization has done more to destroy America than any other organization, maybe in the country. You say, well, you can't talk against our teachers. I'm not, I'm talking against the union and you look at what that union supports, they're anti-Christ, they're anti-God, they're anti-American. You say you're exaggerating, we'll start looking into them and see if I'm right or wrong. In church, we need to start standing up against those organizations that are trying to rewrite our history through the education system. They've hijacked our education system and have control of it right now. And we need Christians who aren't Republican and aren't Democrat to start taking it back from them. You say, well, why is it important? Because you need to see some of the things your kids are going to learn about sex education in that school system. You look at what your kids are going to learn about American history in that school system. You see what they're going to learn about God in that school system. And I'm telling you, it's time for people to rise up, quit being Republican, quit being Democrat and start being Christians, which is a higher call. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're hungry, Lord God. Father, we want to see a move in our generation, Lord God. We want to take back what the enemy clearly has stolen, Lord God. Oh, Father, these organizations, Lord God, have came in, Lord they've destroyed our foundations, Lord God. Father, we've had enough, Lord God. Fill us full of your spirit, Lord God. Oh, Lord God, give us the strength to take it back, Lord God. Father, I pray that you awaken the sleeping giant, Lord God. Awaken your church, Lord God, that's sleeping. Father, sleeping while their children are destroyed, Lord God. Sleeping while their schools are destroyed, while their their nation is destroyed, Lord, physically and spiritually. Lord God, this nation is being destroyed, Lord God. And I pray right now for this church, the church abroad, Lord God, the church in our nation, Lord God. Father, I pray that there would be an awakening, Lord God. Father, a rising up of the majority, the silent majority, let them be silent no more, Lord God. Oh, hallelujah, Lord, we speak it. Oh, begin to move, Lord God. Oh, Father, speak. Lord, Lord, breathe the breath of life, Lord God, into your church. So, do a mighty work, Lord. Hallelujah. In your name we pray, Lord. Hallelujah.